You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is the second part, the Easter section. This is the first lecture in that section, which is Lecture 9 in this sequence. It is entitled Easter, the Festival of Warning, the event at Damascus and the new knowledge of the Spirit, given in Dornach on the 2nd of April, 1920. Ever since the early days of Christianity, it has been the custom to draw a distinction between the festivals of Christmas and of Easter, in that the Christmas festival has been immovably fixed at a point of time a few days after the 21st of December, the winter solstice, whereas the day of the Easter festival is determined by a particular constellation of the stars, one which unites earth and man with worlds beyond the earth. Tomorrow will be the first full moon of spring, upon which will fall the rays of the springtime sun. For since the 21st of March, the sun has been in the sign of spring. When people on earth celebrate the first Sunday after the full moon of spring, a day, that is, which should remind them of their connection with the sun forces, then is the time to keep the Easter festival. Easter is thus a movable festival. In order to determine the time of the Easter festival, note must be taken each year of the constellations in the heavens. Principles such as these were laid down at a time when traditions of wisdom that originated from ancient atavistic clairvoyance were still current, giving human beings a knowledge far surpassing the knowledge that present-day science can offer. Such traditions were a means for bringing to expression man's connection with the worlds beyond the earth. They always point to something of supreme importance for human evolution. The rigid point of time fixed for the Christmas festival indicates how closely that festival is bound up with the earthly, for its purpose is to remind us of the birth of the man into whom the Christ being afterward entered. The Easter festival, on the other hand, is intended to remind us of an event which has significance not merely for the course of earth evolution, but for the whole universal context into which we have been placed. Therefore the time of the Easter festival must not be determined by ordinary earthly conditions. It is a time that can be ascertained only when we turn our thoughts to the worlds beyond the earth. And there is a deeper meaning still in this movable time for the Easter festival. It indicates how, through the Christ impulse, we can be freed from complete subjection to the forces of earth evolution. This can happen through knowledge of what is beyond the earth. The manner of dating the Easter festival contains a call to lift ourselves up to worlds beyond the earth. It contains a promise that we shall, in the course of world history, eventually find it possible 
to become free of earthly conditions through the working of the Christ impulse. To understand all that is implied in this manner of dating the Easter festival, it will be helpful to turn our minds to early secrets of the beginnings of Christianity. Such early mysteries have become more and more veiled and hidden from the materialistic view of the world, which arose at the beginning of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, and which must now be vanquished and superseded. In order to see the whole matter in a true light, it will be necessary, first of all, to consider the part played by the figure of St. Paul in the evolution of the Christ impulse within the whole history of mankind. We should indeed remind ourselves again and again what a great event in the evolution of Christianity was the appearance of the figure of St. Paul. Paul had abundant opportunity to inform himself by external observation of the events in Palestine that were associated with the person of Jesus. Paul was left unconvinced by everything he had seen or heard. And when these events in Palestine had come to an end in the physical sense, he was still an antagonist of Christianity. He became the apostle of the Christian's only after the event at Damascus, after he had experienced the very being of the Christ in an extra-earthly, supersensible manner. Thus Paul was a man who could not be persuaded of the meaning of the Christ impulse by evidence of the physical senses, but only by a supersensible experience. And the supersensible experience that came to him cut deeply into his life, so deeply indeed that from that moment he became another man. In fact, one can say that he became an initiate. Paul was well prepared for such an experience. He was thoroughly acquainted with the secrets of the religion of the Jews. He was familiar with their knowledge and their conception of the world. He was thus well equipped to judge the nature of the event that befell him at Damascus, and to have a right view and understanding of it. The writings of Paul, as we know them, convey only a weak reflection of all that he experienced inwardly. But even so, when he speaks of the event of Damascus, we can discern that he speaks as one who, through this event, attained knowledge of cosmic happenings, lying behind the veil of the world of sense. From the very manner in which he speaks, it is plain that he is fully able to understand the difference between the supersensible and the physical world. When, even externally, we compare the life of Paul with the earthly experience of Christ Jesus, we discover a strange and astounding fact which becomes intelligible to us only when, with the help of spiritual science, we are able to survey the whole evolution of mankind. I have often drawn attention to the great changes which the human body and soul have undergone since ancient times. I have shown you how we have changed and developed in the course of our evolution through the Indian, Persian, Egypto-Chaldean, Greco-Latin epochs, on to our own time. When we look back into the ancient past, we find that man remained capable of organic physical development 
until an advanced age. The parallelism between the development of the soul and the development of the body continued until an advanced age of life. It is a parallelism that we can recognize now only in the three stages marked by the change of teeth, puberty, and the beginning of the twenties. Mankind in general has lost the experience of such transitions in later life. In very ancient Indian times, however, human beings experienced a parallelism between the development of soul and of body up to the fiftieth year of life, in Persian and Egyptian times up to the fortieth year, and in Greco-Latin times up to the thirty-fifth year. In ordinary consciousness we experience a like parallelism only up to the twenty-seventh year, and it is not easy to detect even for so long as that. Now the Christ impulse entered into the evolution of mankind at a time when people, including those of the Greek and Latin races, experienced this parallelism up to the age of thirty-three. And Christ Jesus lived his days of physical earthly life for just so long as the duration of the parallelism between the physical organization and the organization of soul and spirit. Then he passed through the gate of death. What this passage through the gate of death means can be understood only from the point of view of spiritual science. It can be understood only when we are able to look into supersensible worlds. For it is not an event that can be grasped by any thinking concerned entirely with the world of sense. As physical man, Paul was of about the same age as Christ Jesus himself. The time that Christ Jesus spent in his work on earth, Paul spent as an anti-Christian. The second half of his life, though, was determined entirely by what came to him from supersensible experiences. In this second half of his life, he experienced supersensibly what people at and since that time could no longer receive in the second half of life through their senses, because the parallelism between soul, spirit, and physical development was not experienced beyond the thirty-fifth year of life. The event of Golgotha came before Paul in such a way that he received by direct illumination the understanding once possessed by people in an atavistic way through primeval wisdom, which they can now only again acquire through spiritual science. This understanding came to him so that he might kindle in people a realization of what had happened for mankind through the working of the Christ impulse. For about the same length of time that Christ had walked the earth, Paul continued to live upon earth, that is, until about his sixty-seventh or sixty-eighth year. This time was spent in carrying the teaching of Christianity into earth evolution. The parallelism between the life of Christ Jesus and the life of Paul is a remarkable one. The life of Christ Jesus was completely filled with the presence and being of the Christ, Paul was initiated into such a strong after-experience of this event that he could bring to mankind true and fitting ideas about Christianity. 
and could do so for a period of time corresponding very nearly to that of the life of Christ Jesus on earth. There is a great deal to be learned from a study of the connection between the life lived by Christ Jesus for the sake of the earthly evolution of mankind and the teaching given by Paul concerning the Christ being. To see this connection aright would mean a very great deal for us. Only it is necessary to realize that the connection is a direct result of the supersensible experience undergone by Paul. When modern theology goes so far as to explain the event at Damascus as a kind of illusion, as a kind of hallucination, then it is only a proof that in our day even theology has succumbed to materialism. Even theology has no longer any knowledge of the nature of the supersensible world and entirely fails to recognize how important it is to understand the supersensible world before we can have any true comprehension of Christianity. It is good that we should confess today in all sincerity how difficult it is to find our way into the ideas presented in the Gospels and in the Epistles of Paul, ideas that are so totally different from those to which we are accustomed. For the most part, we have ceased to concern ourselves at all with such ideas. But it is a fact that someone who is completely given up to the habits and ways of thought of the present day is far from being able to form the right ideas when he reads the words of Paul. Many present-day theologians put an extreme materialistic interpretation upon the event of Damascus, even trying to disprove and deny the actual resurrection of Christ Jesus, while professing all the time to be true Christians. This merely shows that such persons have no intention of applying knowledge of the supersensible to the essence of Christianity or to the event of the appearance of Christ Jesus in earthly evolution. The very fact that the figure of Paul stands at the summit of Christian tradition as one who acquired an understanding of Christianity through supersensible experience is like a call to us to turn toward supersensible knowledge. It is like a declaration that Christianity cannot possibly be comprehended without having recourse to knowledge that has its source in the supersensible. It is essential that we should see in Paul a man who had been initiated into supersensible cosmic happenings. And in the light of this, to understand what he labored so hard to bring to mankind. Let us try, in the language of the present day, to place before our minds one of the things that seemed to Paul as an initiate to be of peculiar significance. Paul regarded it of supreme importance that through the Christ impulse an entirely new way of relating to cosmic evolution had come to mankind. He felt it essential to declare that the evolutionary period to which had belonged the experiences of the heathen of older times had run its course, was finished for man. New experiences were now here for the human soul. They needed only to be perceived. When Paul spoke in this way, he was pointing to the mighty event 
which made such a deep incision into our evolution on earth, and to which we must come back again and again if we wish to understand history as it truly is. If we look back into pre-Christian times, and especially into those times which possess to a striking degree the characteristic qualities of pre-Christian life, we can feel how different was the whole outlook of people in those days. Not that a complete change took place in a single moment. Nevertheless, the event of Golgotha did bring about an absolute separation of one phase in the evolution of mankind from another. The event of Golgotha came at the end of a period of evolution during which human beings were able to behold the spiritual within the world of the senses. Incredible as it may appear to modern man, it is a fact that in pre-Christian times people saw simultaneously sense-perceptible and spiritual reality. They did not see merely trees or merely plants, but also something spiritual at the same time. But as the event of Golgotha drew near, the civilization that bore within it this power of vision was coming to an end. Something completely new was now to enter into the evolution of mankind. As long as the human being beholds the spiritual in the physical things all around him, he cannot have a consciousness within which the impulse of freedom can develop. The birth of the impulse of freedom is necessarily accompanied by a loss of this vision. Man has to find himself deserted by the divine and spiritual when he looks out upon the external world. The impulse of freedom inevitably implies that if we would again have vision of the spiritual, we must exert ourselves inwardly and draw it forth from the depths of our own soul. Paul also wanted to reveal to human beings how in ancient times, when they were only the race of Adam, they had no need to draw forth an active experience from the depths of their own being in order to behold the divine and spiritual. The divine and spiritual came to them in elemental form with everything that lived in the air and on earth. But mankind had gradually to lose this living communion with the divine and spiritual in all the phenomena of the world of sense. A time had to come when it was necessary for human beings to lift themselves up to the divine and spiritual by an active strengthening of their own inner life. They had to learn to understand the words, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. Close quote. It was no longer right for them to go on receiving a divine and spiritual reality through sense phenomena. They had to find the way to a divine and spiritual realm by means of inner struggle and inward development. People interpret Paul today in such a trivial manner. Again and again they show an inclination to translate what he said into the language of this materialistic age. So trivial is their interpretation of him that they would consider the following view about the content of his message to be pure fantasy, and yet it is absolutely true. Paul saw what a great crisis it was for the world that the ancient vision, which was 
at one and the same time a sense and a spiritual vision was fading away and disappearing, and that another vision of the spiritual was now to dawn in a new kingdom of light, a vision which must be acquired by inner initiative and which is not immediately present in the vision of the senses. Paul knew from his own supersensible initiation experience that ever since the resurrection, Christ Jesus had been and always will be united with earth evolution. But he also knew that although Christ Jesus is present on earth, he can be found only through the awakening of an inner power of vision, not through any mere beholding with the senses. Should anyone think he can reach the Christ with mere sensory perception, Paul knew that he must be giving himself up to delusions, must be mistaking some demon for the Christ. This was what Paul continually emphasized to those of his hearers who were able to understand it, that the old spiritual vision brings no approach to Christ, that with his old vision one can only mistake some elemental being for the Christ. Therefore, Paul exerted all his power to turn people's gaze away from the spirits of air and of earth, which they had been so familiar with in earlier ages. In Paul's time, the capacities for such vision remained in a vestigial, atavistic form that needed to be overcome. Footnote see Epistle to the Galatians 4, chapter 4, verses 3 and 9, end of footnote. He never wearied of exhorting people to develop within themselves a force through which they might learn to understand that an entirely new impulse, an entirely new being, had entered earth evolution. Quote, Christ will come again to you, he said, if you will only find a way out of your purely physical vision of the earth. Christ will come again to you, for he is there. Through the working of the event of Golgotha, he is there, but you must find him. He must come again for you. This is what Paul proclaimed, and in a language which at the time had quite another spiritual ring that has the mere echo left us in our translation. It sounded quite different then. Paul sought continually to awaken in people the conviction that if they would understand Christ, they must develop a new kind of vision different from the one that suffices for the world of sense. Today mankind has only come so far as to speak of the contrast between an external, sense-derived science and faith. Modern theology is ready to admit of the former that it is complicated, that it is real and objective, that it requires to be learned. Of faith it will allow no such thing. It is repeatedly emphasized that faith ought to make appeal to what is utterly childlike in us, to that in us which does not need to be learned. Such is the attitude of mind which rejects the event of Damascus as unreal, preferring to regard it as a kind of hallucination that befell Paul. If, however, the event of Damascus was a mere hallucination, or I might just as well say, if the event of Damascus was what a great number of modern theologians would have it to be, then we ought also to have the courage to say, quote, Away with Christianity, for Christianity has brought with it a belief that is absurd and senseless. 
This would be the necessary outcome of the teaching of modern theology if only people took it, first of all, seriously, then, secondly, with courage. But they do neither. They shrink from having nothing but a merely external, sense-given science. Yet at the same time they deny the real inner impulse of the event of Damascus, while still professing to hold fast to Christianity. It is precisely in such things that the soul and spirit sickness of our age comes to clearest expression. For a deep inner lack of truth is here laid bare. Truth would be obliged to confess that either the event of Damascus was a reality, an event that can be placed in the realm of reality, in which case Christianity has meaning, or it was what it is asserted to be by modern theology, which wants always to associate itself with modern science, in which case Christianity has no meaning. It is important that people should face such conclusions, for there is no doubt we live in an age of severe testing. Human beings have become inwardly untrue in regard to the very matters that are most sacred for them. There, in quotes, Christianity is no longer worthy of the name, and a tendency to untruth, often unconscious but no less destructive on that account, has therefore taken hold of mankind. That is the real reason for the existence of this tendency. That is why this tendency to untruth is so closely interwoven with the events that will inevitably lead to complete decadence in the cultural life of Europe, unless people become aware in time of the need for spiritual knowledge. And if, at this time of severe testing, we would turn to spiritual knowledge, it is useless for us to rest content with a superficial view of life, we must penetrate to the deeper source of things and be ready to contemplate the necessity of mighty changes in our own time. Again and again we must ask, quote, What is a festival such as that of Easter for the greater part of mankind? Close quote. It may be said of very many people who gather together to celebrate Easter that all their thinking runs along the old lines and habits of thought. They use the old words and go on uttering them more or less automatically. They make the same renunciation in the same formula to which they have long been accustomed. But have we any right today to utter this renunciation when we can observe all around us a distinct unwillingness to take part in the great change that is so necessary in our time. Are we justified in using the words of Paul, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, when we show so little inclination to examine what it is that has brought such great unhappiness to mankind in the modern age? Should it not be an essential part of the Easter festival that we set out to gain a clear idea of what has befallen mankind? and of the fact that only supersensible knowledge can lead us out of the catastrophe. If the Easter festival, whose whole significance depends upon supersensible knowledge, for knowledge of the senses can never explain the resurrection of Christ Jesus, if this Easter festival is to be taken seriously, is it not essential 
that we should consider how a supersensible character can be brought again into the human faculty of knowledge? Should the thought not rise up in our minds that all the lying and deception in modern culture is because we are no longer able to take our own sacred festival seriously? We keep Easter, the festival of resurrection, but in our materialistic outlook we have long ago ceased caring whether or not we have a real understanding of the resurrection. We set ourselves at enmity with the truth and try to find all manner of ingenious ways of accepting the cosmic jest, for indeed it would be, or rather it is a jest, that we should keep the festival of the resurrection and at the same time put our whole faith in modern science, which obviously can never endorse such a resurrection. Materialism and the keeping of Easter, these are two things that cannot possibly belong together. They cannot possibly exist side by side. And the materialism of modern theology, that too is incompatible with the Easter festival. In our own time, a book entitled, quote, The Essence of Christianity, close quote, has been written by an eminent theologian of Central Europe and is accounted of outstanding importance. Yet throughout this work we find evidence of a desire to dismiss the fact of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. There you have a true symptom of the times. We must learn to feel these things deeply in our hearts. We shall never find a way out of our present troubles unless we develop understanding of the enmity which modern materialistic man has toward the truth. And unless we learn to truly understand the things in life which are of real significance. During the fifth post Atlantean epoch, a new tendency has been at work, a tendency toward a scientific knowledge that is adapted to the power of human reason and judgment. And now it is time that this should go further and develop into a knowledge of the supersensible world. For the event of Golgotha is an event that falls absolutely within the supersensible world. And the event of Damascus, as Paul experienced it, can be understood only out of supersensible ideas. Whether one can truly feel something of the Christ impulse or not depends on an understanding of these events. In our present age, each individual ought to examine himself and ask whether, at the time we call Easter, he is able to find a connection to supersensible knowledge. For Easter should remind us, by the very way its date is determined, to look up from the earthly to what is beyond the earth. People of modern times have confined their view of what is beyond the earth to concepts derived from mathematics, mechanics, and more recently spectroanalysis. These sciences are the groundwork upon which they try to build up knowledge of all that is beyond the earth. They no longer feel themselves united with those worlds, nor have they any idea that the Christ descended from them when he entered into the person of Jesus. Let me beg you to give these thoughts, which are so pertinent to our present problems, your full and earnest attention. I have often pointed out how a fine spiritual nature such as Hermann Grimm, must view the Kant-Laplace theory, although it has undergone some modification in our day, 
it is still the prevailing theory of the universe. It states that the solar system has come out of a primeval nebula, and in course of mighty changes undergone by the nebula and its densifications, plants, animals, and also man have come into being. And, carrying the theory further, a time will come when everything on the earth will have found its grave, and when all that mankind has made up, in quotes, in the way of ideals and works of culture, will fall silent, when the earth itself will fall like a bit of slag into the sun, and then, in a still later time, the sun will burn itself out and be scattered in the all, not merely burying but annihilating everything that has been made and done by man. Such a view of the ordering of the world must inevitably arise in a time when people try to grasp what is beyond the earth with mathematical and mechanical knowledge alone. A world which is merely quantified and calculated, or in which the qualities of the sun are investigated with the spectroscope, will never reveal the realm from which Christ came down to unite himself with the life of the earth. There are people today who, because they cannot get clarity into their thoughts, prefer not to let themselves be troubled with thought at all, and go on repeating the words they have learned from the Gospels and from the epistles of St. Paul, simply repeating by rote what they have learned, never stopping to think whether it is compatible with the view of the evolution of the earth and man that they acquire elsewhere. But that is the deep inward untruth of our time. People avoid bringing together in their thought the things that essentially belong together. They raise a mist before their eyes so that they may not need to, quote, think together, close quote, the things that belong together. They raise a mist before their eyes when they keep a festival like Easter because they are so far indeed from forming any true idea of the resurrection of which they speak, for a true idea of it can only be formed with spiritual and supersensible knowledge. The only possible way for people nowadays to have a right feeling about Easter is for them to direct their thoughts to the world catastrophe of our own time. I do not mean only the catastrophe of the recent years of war. I refer to that world catastrophe in which human beings have lost all idea of the connection between the earthly and what is beyond the earth. The time has come when we must realize with full and clear consciousness that supersensible knowledge needs to arise from the grave of our materialistic outlook. For together with supersensible knowledge will arise the knowledge of Christ Jesus. In fact, the only fitting symbol for the Easter festival is that the entire soul destiny of mankind has been crucified upon the cross of materialism. But mankind itself must do something before there can arise from the grave of human materialism all that can come from supersensible knowledge. The very striving after supersensible knowledge is itself an Easter deed, is something which gives us the right once more to keep Easter. Look up to the full moon and feel how it is connected with the human being and how the reflection of the sun is connected with the moon. Then meditate on the need today to go in search of a true self-knowledge through which we can reflect the supersensible. 
If we know ourselves to be a reflection of the supersensible, if we recognize how we are formed and constituted out of the supersensible, then we will also find our way to the supersensible. It is basically arrogance and pride that find expression in the materialistic view of the world. It is human pride, manifesting in a strange way. Man does not want to be a reflection of the divine and spiritual. He wants to be merely the highest of the animals. There, certainly, he can be the highest. But among what sort of beings? This pride leads man to recognize nothing beyond himself. If the scientific outlook on the world were to be true to itself, its task would be to impress again and again upon man that he is the highest of all the beings of which he can form an idea. The ultimate consequences of the point of view that sets out to be strictly scientific are such as to make anyone turn pale when it becomes clear on what kind of moral groundwork, however unconscious, they are based. The truth is we are now living in a time when Christ Jesus is being crucified in the realm of knowledge. And until mankind comes to see how the present way of knowledge, which clings to the senses and to them alone, is nothing but a grave of knowledge out of which a resurrection must take place, until it sees this, it will not be able to experience the thoughts and feelings which truly belong to Easter. Above all, we should remember that although we still have the tradition of an Easter festival celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon of spring, yet we have no right to celebrate it if we adhere to the culture of the present day. How can we acquire this right again? We must take the thought of Christ Jesus lying in the grave, of Christ Jesus who at Easter time vanquishes the stone that has been rolled over his grave. We must take this thought and unite it with what our soul should feel about purely external mechanistic knowledge, that it is like a tombstone rolled upon us, whose pressure we must exert ourselves to overcome. Then our confession of faith will not be merely, quote, not I, but the fully developed animal in me, close quote, but rather, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote. It is related of a learned English scientist, footnote T.H. Huxley, end of footnote, that he said he would rather believe that he had by his own energy worked his way up little by little from the ape stage to his present height as man than that he had descended from a once divine height as his opponent, who could not give credence to the ideas of natural science, appeared to have done. Such things only serve to show how urgent it is to find the way from the confession of faith, quote, not I, but the fully developed animal in me, close quote, to that other confession of faith, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote. We must strive to understand this word of Paul. Not until then will it be possible for the true Easter message to rise up from the depths of our hearts and souls and enter into our consciousness. The end of Lecture 9, which is uh, Lecture 1 in the Easter section.